Good afternoon. This is Talking Devils, your favourite Manchester United podcast. I'm Wayne Barton. I'm in a very good mood because Manchester United beat Liverpool last night. I'm joined by Matt Dickinson, senior sports writer at the Times. How are you doing, Matt? You all right? Yeah, I'm doing good. I, yeah, I was going to say, I bet you got a smile on your face after after that one last night. It was um, it was just pretty amazing, wasn't it? it yeah, it, I mean, amazing is the word in that <laughs> you don't think that... But, I mean, United have continuously surprised me over the years um, in, in many good ways. I didn't think they had that surprising them. And I'm not saying that I, I wrote the players off. I wanted to believe that they were better than what they've shown over the last year. I mean, they obviously finished second and third. So you know that they've got something within them. Um, having said that, I did not expect last last night. It, it thoroughly exceeded all of my expectations. But all of a sudden, 90 minutes um, transforms us into thinking we might be battling for relegation, into thinking, you know what, top four might be a possibility with this squad. So, yeah, it's, um, having said that, I still, I'm 41 years old and I still can't enjoy watching Manchester United play Liverpool. I don't know what it is. It's the worst game of the season. Everyone like says, oh, they love it. It is the worst game of the season. The best part of it was when they, the schedulers would move it to 12.30pm because at least then it was, you only had a few hours of the day to get anxious about it and then it was over. But yeah, thankfully, thankfully we got a win. Um Right. We're not here to talk about Liverpool as much as I would like to. I've already done two podcasts on that today with um, Luke Steele and Paul Parker on the channel. You can check those out. Uh, we are here to talk about this fantastic book, 1999, Manchester United, the treble and all that. Before I do get started, please like and subscribe. If you're watching live on YouTube, feel free to get your questions and comments in. I've got a load of questions for Matt, but if I've got time, I'll, I'll try and get to as many as we can. And I am going to be talking about the Jim Ratcliffe story as well later on. Um, if you're watching the replay, say hello. We do still um, reply to comments on that. And if you're listening back on the audio podcast, please be sure to give us a review on the platform you're listening on. But Matt, let's start with the business side of it. Why Yoria is to plug the book. And it is an exceptional book. Um, and I can say that because I've written many myself. So I always find it a joy if someone has written something on a subject that I haven't yet tackled, that I perhaps want to tackle, but I just haven't got around to it, or for for whatever reason, haven't um, ventured into that area for, for whatever reason. I, and I haven't really gone to 1999, even though I lived through it as a, a late teenager, and there's some of my best memories there. And I'm so glad that you did, did this book, um, especially having read it, but firstly knowing your credible um, your credibility and your, your quality as a writer. Um, I was excited when I knew that it was going to be you writing that and obviously your closeness to United in the past and the people that you've worked with. I knew that it'd be authentic. I knew that you'd be telling, giving the story justice and telling it in the right way. It sounds like a daft question, but I'm not usually in this position where I'm asking someone why they wrote a book. But it's always a question that I get asked first. Why this book? Why, why were you compelled to write it? Yeah, it's a good question. There's, I think there's a, f a few answers. I mean, one is the simple. Uh, there was, uh, you know, we I meet up with a few of the, shall we say, the, you know, um, they count as the old crew now um, at my age. And whenever we're telling stories about the, you know, the good old times, as journalists like to over a uh, pint every now and then, as you'll know, um, the stories always come back to this era and this team in particular, back to Fergie stories, back to Beckham stories, back to Neville stories, Keane. And I think that maybe answers the question in in another way is that obviously the the feat is unique um the treble has not been matched you know we've seen liverpool 
um, all that talk of the quad squad, um, and they fell short. And we've seen City get close a couple of years ago and, and fall short. So the you know the treble itself is unique. The drama was you know as any United um, fan and the world knows was just unmatchable. His, you know just you know still gives you goosebumps, spine tingling to think of not just the new Camp but so many games. But I think. Telling those stories about the characters was the absolute key. I, I think it was the fact that there were so many... I've never come across a dressing room like it. You know, I've been lucky enough to cover sport for 25 years and to think that you could have Ferguson and Keane and Neville and Schmeichel and Giggs and Beckham and you just got, you know, York and Cole. And, and I, I found all of them compelling at the time and I wanted to go catch up with them. I was lucky enough to have, you know, to help Gary with a book. I've done a, something with Beckham before and access to these guys and use that access to reflect again 20 years on so i think it was it's the it's the people as much as the you know the, the football and the defeats and the trophies and um you know it, the, the joy of it was catching up with these characters and finding that their perspectives have changed they've got new stories to tell that i've never heard you know they would tell me stuff that i thought how did we miss that at the time you know um so i i think it's it's a story of extraordinary people as much as it is of winning football matches. Yeah, I wanna, I'm not going to be asking you obvious questions. You're probably going to be thinking, why have I asked you this? Which not at all. The, the, most, uh, the more general ones about the finals and everything, but the ones that I've read and found fascinating because either I couldn't remember the quote or I'm like, oh, God, that's something I definitely want to pick your brains about. Um, and you mentioned it earlier about Liverpool, the quad squad, and I'll probably mention that a couple of times, and obviously City winning the domestic treble. There's been a lot of references to, oh, is this going to be achieved um, over this calendar year or whatever? Not this year, I'm talking about the last four or five seasons. It, it always comes pretty early in the season. Um, but one of the first thing that stood out to me was a, a quote that you got from Peter Schmeichel when you dared to go up to him in the, in the airport, um, where he said, We'd, you asked him, how do you think you get on against the 1968 European Cup side? And he said, we beat them 10-0. And he wasn't happy about the way that that came across from your fellow sports writers. So first of all, I want to know, what was the spirit in which he meant it? Because, I mean, it's a pretty powerful <laughs> statement as it is. And secondly, I, how do you deal with those kind of things? As someone who has covered the sport over cross-generations, I always my obvious and easy retort to that is that Giggs won the league as a teenager in 1993, and then he won it as a near 40-year-old in, in that 2013. So, you know, sports people can cross generations. And also, it's not as if, like, the diet of 20 years ago would be in the existence of a, a sports person today. So you've got to take all these things into account. Having said that, it was Schmeichel went down that usual party line of the games much faster these days, all that sort of stuff. So talk to me about your recollection of, of yeah. that. So we were flying out to Dortmund to the, the, the semi-final in 97 and obviously that was huge at the time because United were closer than they'd ever been and um, I, you know, I was on the Express at the time and done some different bits with, with, with Peter and uh, one of the lads, I remember we we're, were loitering around the airport and again this is different times, We've, we would fly out with the team then, you know, we would be getting on the same plane, we would be bumping into them at carousels, there was more of an intimacy that, you know, than, that, that was just possible then. So, you know, we were, we were short of a, you know, it's a huge game. How are we going to preview it? And someone said, oh, you know, you know, Peter, go see if he'll have a word. And I just, we just got chatting. And Peter, you know, despite the, the sort of some of the persona that maybe come over, was quite a very reflective, intelligent guy who, who, when he talked, would always talk interestingly. And he, 
we got onto comparisons with 68 and he just said you know as you say um we'd beat them 10 nil but then put all this context about the game has changed and you know it's almost looked like walking football then and he didn't mean to disparage them he was he went out of his way to say that but as you say blown up in the headline um we'd win 10 nil um especially when he gets injured before the Dortmund game, especially when they lose it 1-0. So after that match, you know, he is in a stinker of a mood and I'm uh, standing around in the mix zone. And next, you know, I've got the sight of a six foot four Dane running at me down the tunnel, basically saying, you've made me look at, um, I, I don't know if you've got any younger listeners here, but um, you've made me look an ass, but stronger than that in front of Bobby Charlton. And, and yeah, absolutely tearing a, strip off me so yes it was um it was it was uh an account we we did recover from it although literally he did mention it again when we talked for this book so it shows that he um he's he's got a good memory if nothing else um but yeah it was i mean that story was it was sort of typical of a few things a you say that have the access to 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 you know um you know, to, to, to be able to both ask him the questions in the first place and deal with the ramifications afterwards to talk about the, you know, the, the whole dynamic of United and the burden of 68 and the whole, you know, trying to match that achievement. And, you know, it's got, people have to remember in you know, 98, 99, going into that treble season, this was, this, this obsession was almost crushing. I mean, it was like, is any team, you know, United for all the domestic titles they'd won, still hadn't won the European Cup and Fergie would not be regarded as a great manager till he did it. So there's all that yearning and craving and obsession for that. Um, and yeah, they, they, and they fell short against Dortmund who were very beatable teams. So there's all this tension that came pouring out of, came pouring out of Peter Schmeichel that night. And um, it was, it was, it, you know, they were the sort of, again, it's one of the reasons why I've written the book. Those are the sort of stories that, you know, we got to tell in the pub, you know, Peter Schmeichel almost ripped my head off last night. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to come back and, and relive it again. <laughs> well, really? Yeah, just see how close you can come to... Well, well, felt, yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I, for, for, for a, for a, um, a while I, I felt what it was like to be, you know, Yap Stam or you know Gary Palace to Steve Bruce if they've just you know <laughs> cocked up in the six yard box you know to have Peter Schmeichel in your face saying you know um, putting putting you straight is quite a memorable quite a memorable thing and obviously again in the in the book plenty of stories of of, of Alex Ferguson doing the same I mean it, we we did have that intimate relationships then which you know I say I don't you know still football writing is still you know a job to die for but. It is done on different terms and different relations than it was in the 90s. Yeah, for sure. Um, one person who you've already mentioned, you're close to Gary Neville. You, you work with him on another fabulous book, by the way, fantastic autobiography. And one of those that I think was just preceding, in in between the spell of his retirement and his media career, which you sort of really got the feel for knowing that he'd be a great um, asset to, to the media. Um, he once, and I think it might be a line from the book. If it's not a line from the book that you had with him, I'm, ta I'm talking about his, not not the current one. You'll certainly be familiar with the phrase because I'm sure he's mentioned it more than once. He said something like, "What we've achieved, what our team achieved," and he was talking about the treble side. But I think his overall career it won't be appreciated fully for another generation. So he's basically speaking about this generation now. Yet when you do hear people talk about trebles and quadruples as if they fall off trees, 
and they talk about it in October, November, and December, and then they make all these comparisons. I'm sure that you've seen them. Like, it's they always say, "Is this Liverpool team better than the United '99?" And this is in January of any year when they've not even won anything yet. It's, it sort of pulls the lie on what Gary says, really, because they make the comparisons why it's easy to say, like, say that these achievements are easy to sort of accomplish and they're not and there isn't really a universal true appreciation for what the team accomplished in and the way in which they did it do you do you think that that's fair i mean when you see the you, i mean you you felt compelled to write a book about it you obviously i know that there's some part in the conclusion um, which is obviously fairly ri- recently written to to conclude with the events of last season so you've made that you know obviously not wanting to be caught out just in case yes. you did win the well, let's just let's just Let's just say when Man City were losing two 0 at home to uh, Aston Villa, I was thinking this this is going to be the biggest rewrite since 1999. Basically, I mean it was, uh, and to be taken out the word unprecedented, that's for sure. So yeah, that was um, that was a that was a nervous um, little, little afternoon. It's fair to say. Yeah, but obviously, well, thankfully for me, thankfully for the book, um, it didn't turn out that way. Um, not that you want to be thankful for City winning the league. Anyone who's watching or listening to this, but still, the point remains that. What Gary was the point that he was making that you know this generation would um, would appreciate what has happened with um, United a lot more. It doesn't seem to have been the case really because a lot of what United that achievement seems to have been almost diluted in in some respects that they can just talk. I mean, they talk about the quality of the league. They said the points tally was low and everything like that. And I'm like, are we living? I know that there's a, a new generation of people who weren't even alive, which is scary to me at this point in time. But it is like people have rewritten history to the point where they have no appreciation for how good that team or that accomplishment was, especially when you see, and I don't want to call it a failure because it's not even about failure. Even winning a double, even winning a trophy is a massive achievement for some teams. So it's not a failure if you don't win the treble because only one team's ever done it. But the way that they hype it up as if it can be done every year and then they... They've already devalued United through like four or five months worth of under, you know, saying, oh, they're not better than the Liverpool side of 2020, 2019, all that sort of stuff. It almost means like, doesn't matter what they did accomplish because what this team might accomplish, which is only the same. It's such a strange paradox to me that, that this can exist in, in sports yeah. media when people are telling the story. Well, and I get, you know, I totally get it. And as you say, it's sort of, you know, the, the fact that there have been trebles, you know, there have been way more trebles done in the, 21st century than wherever in, in in the 20th you know Barcelona and the age of the super clubs and that's why again I hope with the book you know if you are younger readers who you know are just coming to this story you know not knowing about it I hope putting it in the context of the time of just this team were they were pioneers and and they were carrying a, a, a massive burden and they 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 were exploring you know new territory new and no one did think it was possible until it started unfolding. I mean, yeah, the, every step of the way we thought, well, you know, they're up against a, a f- massively formidable Arsenal team who say were obviously double winners from the year before and an ex- exceptional side and every expectation of winning their own double right up till, you know, we're talking into into April. We're talking, you know, playing Juventus who've been to three Champions League finals in the previous three years and you're having to overcome them. You're having to overcome Barcelona and, you know, we were still... 90s football in England as well was still, you know, we, we had started the foreign invasion, you know, suddenly this league was growing, but the Premier League was not the dominant league, you know, there were still much higher paid players in Italy, all the you know the record transfer fees were, were generally still abroad, you know, English football was, 
was on the boom and was heading to the the league we know today, but was still some catching up to do. So, you know, that, again, I think that comes back to character. I think, yeah, the idea that the sort of this achievement is in any way, um, as you say, diminished by, oh, well, all these teams getting close to trebles and quadruples now is nonsense. In the context of the time, it was, you, you couldn't, believe it till you saw it you know and 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 at every step they had to do a record-breaking run of more than 30 matches unbeaten from just before christmas to, to to do it they had to come back from the dead you know countless times they had to perform miracles you know in three or four matches big matches so it's it was you know you add you add all that together and this is you know say i've covered a lot of sport been lucky but this remains the best story of all to tell and to to remember yeah um it started with the vilification of david beckham through the tabloids um, after the world cup all this time later and you know don't get me wrong the english press love to make villains of the heroes um but i still don't think i've ever seen anything quite like what david beckham experienced in those first few months is that right? I mean, I, I'm a United fan. I'm obviously biased by that. But my recollection is it was a lot more intense on Beckham than I've seen any other player suffer since. Absolutely. And, you know, and that was, again, it, I mean, when I, the more I sort of, you know, I had this idea I want to do this book. And the more I sort of looked at it, the, the, the reasons for doing it just grew and grew because, as I say, it was, there was so much that condensed into that season. And, you know, Beckham, what, what a huge story in itself, as you say, sent off in, in the 98 World Cup. And this was, a, again, it was fascinating to look back on a different era before social media and when the newspapers had this massive clout, you know, right, right, rightly or wrongly used as it was. But a newspaper front page would, you know, just dropped on people's lives and turned them upside down like like nothing. Um, you can, I mean, social media. There is a zillion reactions out there, and but I think it's almost easier to turn that off. You know, if you've got a strength of will, you can just sort of decide. Right, I'm not going to look at Twitter or or whatever. Whereas in those days, a newspaper front page, it felt like it set a national agenda and reflected a national agenda. And Beckham was vilified. He was his face on a dartboard. I mean, put it this way. For the book, as you'll know, I spoke to Piers Morgan, who was editor of The Mirror at the time, did the infamous front page. Well, he was proud of the front page about 10 heroic lines, one stupid boy. But he admitted that when it got came to putting Beckham's face on the dartboard and so on, he had gone too far. And, and when Piers Morgan says, I've gone too far on something, then, <laughs> then you know, this is a guy who's, you know, trying to cancel cancel culture and, and shout for free speech and say anything goes. And he he admitted, yeah. The vilification of Beckham went too far, and they say if Piers Morgan is saying that, then that tells you something. We did genuinely wonder if he would be driven out of the country. It, it really did seem like this guy will have to move abroad because his life is going to be made unbearable if he stays at Man United. Yeah, and in, in a strange way, it goes to show the strength of his character. A lot of people talk about him as a celebrity footballer, but the strength of character that he, he sort of took to come through that and. Um, and to be fair, the previous season, it, it sort of got it in the neck from Chelsea fans in particular. I can remember there was a, a strong section there that um, did not take very kindly to David Beckham. But it showed, yeah, it showed tremendous character over the certainly the coming season, the, the treble season, but the, the, the years which followed as well. Um, I want to ask you about, obviously, there's the three trophies in, in 11 days. Um, 
and it's not just the three trophies I think about with the with the treble season. It's the eight day spell where we played against um, Arsenal at Villa Park in the replay, and then in Turin, two of the greatest games in the club's history. In one of those, you had one of the top three goals in the club's history, and this is just my personal opinion. I think yours is slightly different um, after reading the book. Um, one of the top three individual performances in the club's history in Keynes in Turin. Um, I noted with interest, and I don't necessarily disagree because you made the comparison there. Roy Keane was even better in the FA Cup final in '96, and I definitely agree that he, he was outstanding in that game. I always compare that to um, Peter Schmeichel in, against Newcastle in '96, when if you watch it back now, with the distance that we've got and the clarity that we've got. It is exceptional goalkeeping, but not necessarily in gravity-defying saves. It's a matter of control and positioning. There's nothing, a couple of good saves in there, but nothing overly spectacular. It's it's more about mentality and like, you'll never beat me because I'm a brick wall kind of thing. And therefore, when you look it back, it's like, oh, well, that's not as outstanding as I remember it to be. Keane's definitely is, whether or not you agree it's better than yeah. 96 or not, it's still as outstanding as it was. Um, as you remember it. But this is the, the thing what I found really compelling about the book because you could remember covering it at the time. You'll remember Keane's recollection, Ferguson's recollection. And now, and then you, they, all, they both did their own books at the same time, around the same time, and they came out and they're both full of glowing tributes. And then you look at the more recently published books and their recollections of it, and you wonder if they're describing the same man or the same people. It's like, I don't understand. So when you go back and you're looking at it, how, how difficult is it to cut through all that and say this is how I evaluated it to be? Yeah, well, I see. It's interesting because I, you know, I certainly tried to. I mean, there was again one of the joys of doing it was to go back and watch, you know, watch the whole of obviously the Arsenal um, semi-final replay again um, and the whole of Turin again, and just again just to check if is the memory playing tricks. Is it as good as I remember? And I can honestly say that I, you know, I'm literally on the edge of my seat for. Both of those games, never mind the, the the new camp, absolutely. It's like you're watching it, not knowing the outcome. You know, you're just so caught up in the drama again and the the characters. But I I have to say, the first half of Turin, I think in particular, just I found I was just like, wow. I mean, this is just. Um, there was a great expression once used by the Brazil coach after Brazil England 1970, where he said it was a game for adults, and I felt the same thing. It was just like a, it was just a proper proper ding dong you know it was like i think i used it talking about villa park the heavyweight championship of the world it felt yeah. like it felt almost like you know um united did they won the heavyweight championship of the world at villa park and as you say a week later it's like they've just beaten sunny liston and then a week later they have to walk into a ring with george foreman i mean it was just that that type of intensity and that first half in Turin in particular where two 0 down after twenty minutes, and you know we are, you know, you know how it is in in um, newspaper deadlines. We're, we're writing during the game, and I've literally typed into my, you know, into my laptop. Um, you know, it's all over again. You know, another anticlimax, and you know, you just thought they can't get off the canvas one more time. And Keane with the goal and with the captain's performance, obviously, does it. And and it, you know, it is such a shame that him and Ferguson, you know, they, they, they their relationship soured to such an extent that they, they can't say anything nice about each other anymore. Because, again, to go back and, and talk to all the players about how Roy Keane was in that 99 season, I mean, I, I think I say, 
I actually find the punditry he does both compelling and a little artificial at times because he's he's paid to be angry Roy. He's paid to, you know, tear tear people apart. And actually, I think there's more to him than that. I think he's intelligent and I think he's funny and I think he's sharp and I think he's got a, a very bright mind. And I would like to see all of that Roy Keane on the TV because, you know, I think, um, yeah, I think there's more to him than he almost allows himself to show on, on TV. And, and again, to go back and to, to look back at the book was to hear the United players say that, you know, he could be terrifying one minute, inspirational the next. He could be, you know, um, but the one thing he was, was utterly, utterly uncompromising. He came back from a serious injury into the treble season. He, he resolved not to drink as much at least. And, um, I still think it's one of the great underrated individual seasons we have ever seen. Um, the, the players, I you know, spoke to the, the vast majority of that squad and they had no hesitation in saying Roy Keane was the outstanding player of that season. Yeah, I'm not going to push you on the split ball thing. That's a conversation that's definitely in the book. But yeah, I think you're right. And maybe it is a split vote thing that goes into the the idea that it was an underrated season. I remember it at the time, and I, I certainly wouldn't have. If you were going to say, do you think I had an underrated season? I wouldn't have said Keane. I might have even said Beckham before Keane because because of what he went through um, and the way that, rightly or wrongly, because Ginola won the um, won the. Don't, re- don't remind don't don't remind us don't remind us. It's yeah. I mean, it's well, nuts. Because of that. Um, and because there's been sort of like a, there was an instant backlash against it, I always feel like Keane kind of got his he got his reward a year later anyway. But it's almost like an apologetic award. Um, but yeah. everyone sort of says, "Oh, Ginola won it, but Keane should have won it." So he gets his respect in that regard. But the other players like a York or a Beckham. Well, is that, I mean, any York, Beckham, and I think probably Yapstam would yeah. have been would have been you know fourth on the list. But yeah, I mean, it, it would have been yeah. And if if any one of Keane York Beckham or Stam had won an award, you could have you you would have said fair enough. I mean, they were all absolutely exceptional. But you know, again, there were many players who you know that was again the strength of the of that team is that we are talking about some absolutely top class players at their peak, and not just at their peak in terms of how they played, but in terms of the character that they were required to show. Like you mentioned about Beckham, I mean, it wasn't just the fact that he you know was hitting those free kicks and all those crosses on the run and the countless assists. It was the fact he was doing so while everyone was telling him, you know, that he should, uh, um, well, he was just getting vitriolic abuse, not just for him, but for his fiance at the time. Yeah. Um, by the way, if you're watching this live, I am going to get around to asking Matt about Jim Ratcliffe, but we are talking about this book at the moment, 1999. And, um, I'm still going to indulge him in a few more questions because I've got a couple of things to ask. Um, there's a passage in the book where you're talking about the final in the new camp. Um, we cut uh, the title. Uh, the title of the chapter is 102 seconds. Some say that that period of time is a blur for me. It sort of is. I, I can remember the feeling. I do remember the goals. I remember Neville taking the throw in. I remember Solskjaer winning the corner. How much of that is vivid in your own mind? I mean, as a as someone covering the game, how much are you present in that moment of time? And then how, how much are you thinking as a writer, as it's unfolding, all of this has got to be unwritten? Well, that's uh, yeah, it's a great question. And I think I've relived this, you know, it's almost, <laughs> I'm sure not as much as Teddy Sheringham or Oli Solskjaer, but it sometimes feels it in, in my own head because the, yeah, as you say, as a reporter, we're 
as I explained, the book, we're up against deadlines and we actually have to, especially at that time, technology was 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 pretty, you know, uh, just um, the dawn of, of um, laptops and so on, um, but no, certainly no Wi-Fi, et cetera. So we, we were really up against it. And basically I have filed a thousand words of report of how basically Fergie's slightly screwed up the midfield, you know, gigs on the right. Was that the right decision? Blomquist, he could have different permutations and that's gone. And then Sherryham scores. And I do remember, I've got a memory of that goal because I'd already fired and I'm watching the game thinking, you know, shrugging my shoulders, thinking what a shame it's, it's all over. And I remember the Sherryham goal vividly. And I remember turning to my colleague and saying, um, oh, wow and then oh at least as a journalist we've got another half hour of extra time just to get our thoughts straight and think about you know how we're going to salvage this piece we've already sent and what does that mean for deadlines and we're literally having that conversation and he's ringing the office saying right you know how are we going to handle extra time when do you need a stuff when <laughs> the other corners won and the ball goes in and uh, you know I'd, I'd if i try and remember the moment it is it is a mass combination of adrenaline as a football lover who's just gone wow how you know this is unbelievable what i've just seen this is you know the greatest end to the greatest story i've seen then there is the um absolute panic of oh my god the the match is over and the feeling i how am I going to, I can't write about, you know, I've got, you know, 10 seconds to rewrite a, a, a report that's already gone in and try and capture, you know, talk about 102 seconds. We've got less than 102 seconds to rewrite a piece and get it in. And, and I, I'm, you know, writing the, the, the prologue to the book, you know, um, one of the reasons I've come back and done it is because I made such a botch of that <laughs> botch of that <laughs> jo job on the night that I needed another 20 years to think about how I was going to rewrite it um, and, and come back to it. But it was, it was one of those places where you would there was nowhere else on earth you would rather be. You're in the new camp, you've got the greatest treat of all. And at the same time, as a journalist, your head is, you know, is ex exploding with the idea of how I'm gonna make sense of this in a very short space of time. And uh, and I'm not I'm not sure I did. No, I think you did a good job. But also you did have some fair warning. Solskjaer did score an injury time winner earlier in the season against Liverpool. Well, exactly. Should have should have should should have known. Should have known. No, I mean the minute I have to say the minute that the equalizer went in, I certainly you know, I think we all thought United, you know, that the momentum has just sung swung so rapidly that they're probably gonna win it. But yeah, would have you know, if if Ollie if Ollie was thinking of the press box, he would have um he would at least have given us a bit of breathing space into extra time before he'd have done mm -hmm. it. But um, then, it, then you know, it would still have been a hell of a story, but um, perhaps not quite as immortal as, as this one clearly is. No, yeah. Earlier in the book, you described Fergie time thus. Um, a late decisive goal created a dynamic and momentum and empowering sense that United were irrepressible. Fergie time was a belief system. And that really is the case, isn't it? I mean, for example, bringing on Solskjaer, He's not just bringing on a quality striker. He's bringing on a striker who scored a goal on his debut as a substitute, and everybody remembered that. He scored a late winner as a substitute already that season uh, against Liverpool. He scored four goals from the bench as a substitute um, against Forest. I mean, 13 years in the job as he had at that point, it gives you this opportunity to establish and cut control narratives like Ferguson liked to do so much, so much so that it's almost creating a storyline in the head of his own team to psychologically empower them and to do that to the opponents as well. I mean, he would use that for years in the future as well. 
how, how crazy is it to i mean i guess in the moment it's difficult to appreciate it because it's unfolding but now stepping back with the obviously the perspective that you've got so masterfully with the book it's crazy to look at how someone can co commandeer such control in in frenetic circumstances yeah and i think it's it's, it's all cumulative isn't it because obviously um yeah, I think Fergie time sort of origins come from that Sheffield Wednesday comeback, obviously, when they, they win that for the first title. And, and that, you know, and I, and I think, well, it goes back way further than that. It comes from Ferguson's character. You know, I think that, you know, there is an absolute defiant scrapper in him, isn't there? That, that That's his nature. And, and I think absolutely key to the uh, Alex Ferguson's genius is that he wanted a team to reflect his character. I mean, I think that's the absolute core of Alex Ferguson. And that meant, obviously, defiant, belligerent, scrapping for your life. It, you know, the idea of giving in is just unthinkable. And, and so on top of, so that creates a certain dynamic. Then you've got the idea that he is a, a gambler by nature. So, you know, he's not the type who plays out draws or accepts defeat or, you know, just sort of gives up. He He's always going to be looking for bold substitutions. Allied to that, you've got Solskjaer's character and what a genius, you know, basically the board wanted to sell Solskjaer at the start of the season. They didn't want four strikers. They wanted to get some money back and basically Ferguson pulled a fast one on them and and managed to keep Solskjaer, stopped him going to Spurs. And you've got Solskjaer's character, which is to accept that he was at the club he wanted to be at. And if that meant a partial role, then he was going to accept it without complaint. And he was going to, better than that, he was going to, learn the role of the and you watch back that 99 final when he arrives onto the pitch it is with an absolute spring in his step you know he is you know and maybe you should say you should take that for granted but you can just see the energy that he instantly brings you know and Nicole had a really tough night you know it was a United didn't play well the service wasn't right but Solskjaer changes the dynamic like instantaneously because i think it's say cumulative is partly fergie time is partly the team it's partly the sense that it's worked a, a lot of times before and you know no one obviously could guess that he was going to score the goal that he did but as you say people say was it lucky well you know i think that's why i've called some of the match chapters character is fate i think you know character shape character shapes a lot of fate and i don't think that's ever been more true than this team and this achievement yeah um look the number of interviews you got in this book the incredible volume of statistics in the back which trust me a real indulgence for anyone the goal <laughs> combinations and stuff like that i'm like yes this is right in my wheelhouse i absolutely loved it and the quality of research as i was saying earlier speaks for itself and i'm also pleased that um one one of the quirks that you used in writing the book one of the devices you used was to create 99 chapters and although it's one of the briefest, um, the idea, you dedicated one chapter to the idea of the 1994 side against the 99 side, which um, I'm really glad that you did that. 94 side was my favourite one growing up. So uh, seeing that you'd actually taken the time to do that and acknowledge a great side and obviously what they um, didn't go on to accomplish was really, really nice. I'm not going to spoil that and who comes out on top because that's in the book um yeah i'll just give it another plug while i'm here before i move on to the next part manchester united the treble 1999 the treble and all that um really really fantastic really highly recommended um the book i'm going to do a nice segue here without a spoiler um the book also covers the attempted sky takeover and i will leave those events for the book but it does provide me this um convenient jump into the story which you broke last week in the times 
which was of Sir Jim Ratcliffe's interest in acquiring shares or taking over fully at Manchester United. Now, this single story, you know, you'll be aware, everyone will have told you this, is, and you'll know because you've been around it, um, has provoked the greatest feeling of optimism that I can remember over the club, I mean, over the last generation. I probably include the European Cup winning that because of the the um, feeling, well, the feeling since 2005, really, and where, you know, as a supporter base, we're here a few days later wondering what happens next. We're seeing a flurry of signings come in, wondering what's going on. Um, the crowd was unbelievable last night at Old Trafford. Um, I wasn't expecting that atmosphere either. Um, so everyone's speculating. First of all, wondering what, what the state of play is at the moment. Um, was the Chelsea bid an attempt to tease that um, Sir Jim was ready to bid for United and see what the reception was? What, what's your understanding of the state of play? At the yeah, I, I mean, I think I can well answer some of that. And a, a, a lot of the, the questions will reside with with the, the Glazers, who, as we know, are not 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 the world's best at answering anything. Um, you know, never never mind running the place. But no, they. I don't think that I don't think that the Chelsea bid was was um, any kind of. My understanding, you know, is not that it was any kind of sort of, you know, uh, teaser for anything that was going on at United. I think it was sort of opportunistic, if you like. I think basically we've seen that Jim Ratcliffe, a very, very rich man, is um, professionally in terms of getting Ineos out there and personally in terms of being almost 70 and having a, you know, Big lot of wedge in his bank account, certainly uh, more than me and you, I, I, I suspect, is is looking to use that money to his fulfillment and one of the, his great passions is sport. So I think the Chelsea thing was, you know, he'd looked at it before, thought it was overpriced, and then suddenly it came back on and too late in the day they, they looked at a move for it. But I think what it did signal crucially was that he is very interested in a Premier League club, a serious Premier League club, and that he's willing to, to dig deep for it. And he was a United fan as a kid, born and raised in, in Greater Manchester, was at the New Camp in 99. I actually sort of, in one of our chats, spoke to him about it um, and was you know, blown away as, uh, as, 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 as you'd expect by, by the experience. And I think there is serious interest. You know, I've gone back and you know, asked that question again. I think there is. And I think there's a couple of fascinating dynamics from the Glazer side. One is that, as we know, there is a need for stadium in particular that is you know we could be talking hundreds of millions there to to make that stadium fit for purpose in the 21st century for the long term and secondly there is the dynamic of six glazer siblings and to get absolute clarity on this is very hard but there is a understanding from two or three places it's say with the glazers as journalists we're always sort of picking at the edges it feels but there is an understanding that 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 while joel and avram glazer are you know some kind of commitment if that's not quite the right word to the club other siblings may be looking to cash out and so for a combination of reasons it looks like the Glazers are exploring opportunities and Jim Ratcliffe's made it very clear that he would like to explore it with them now the speed with which that can move might move whether there's any compatibility whether it would just be a minority stake whether the Glazers would just want financing and to try and keep full control of the club those are bigger questions that you know. I don't think anyone can satisfactorily answer at the moment. The Glazers might not even know themselves. You know, I think you know. I think as far as we understand, they're exploring all avenues. But I think you're right. I think the 
the, 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 the thing that has really shifted is that the fans know now that there is a potential credible alternative. And, you know, given what the Glazers have done to undermine so much of the club, I do, if I was a United fan, I would be hopeful of that credible alternative while being realistic that the Glazers are a force to themselves. They've been stubborn, pig-headed and everything else in the last, you know, 15 odd years. And um, to get clarity off them is really difficult. With, with um, Jim's position, has he used the me is he using the media as his vehicle to sort of get that intention out there, or do you know if he's had actual meaningful dialogue with? with the well, I think you know, I, you know, obviously the media has been used in the sense of they, you know, they did make sure that put out those quotes about interest, and I think that was just, uh, you know, I think there is a sort of PR battle going on in that sense of just getting it out, you know, and, and hoping that the fans recognise that there is this credible alternative and almost, I guess, sort of testing the water of, you know, is this a, you know, popular alternative and, and how fans respond. Um, you know, I, I do think that, it, I, do, I do think it goes beyond that. Um, you know, I'm sure it goes beyond that. But I think, yes, hey, back to that issue of, you know, dealing, getting straight answers from the Glazers, I don't think it's even that clear to those who would invest in the club. I don't think, you know, um, there was that uh, Apollo, you know, um, private equity group that were mentioned last week, potential other suitors. My understanding is that the Glazers are in a sort of um, trying to find out what options are, are out there. Um, and, uh, you know, if whether that moves in days, weeks, months or longer, you know, is, is almost the next big question, I think. Um, and I say there's probably two men on earth who know the answer to that or maybe even one in Joel Glazer. And um, I, I certainly don't have the clear answer to that at the moment. I, you know, that's for sure. But, you know, I'm, I'm certainly trying to find out along, <laughs> along with um, a lot of other journalists in Manchester. Yeah, it's interesting that whenever there's been rumours of this nature in the past, um, yourself or other sources like yourself, credible sources and journalists, I should say, you generally quickly have an answer even if it's just like a one-line spokesperson just saying not not interested not for sale the club aren't doing anything and there's just been complete silence this time around which is which is um, interesting yeah into itself and also you know i don't think journalists like me should be scared of saying there is stuff we don't know and and that's you know uh, you know it's easy you know i do think in the industry everyone you know every, of course everyone wants to know and everyone want you know sometimes <laughs> wants to pretend they know but there is there are the, the biggest questions you know Say, I, my understanding is Jim Jim um, Radcliffe is serious. My understanding is that the Glazers, as for reason mentioned, are exploring options. But you know, there are some massive you know ifs and ands and buts beyond that. That yeah, I, I would I'm not going to sit here and sort of pretend I've got easy answers to when I think it's more complicated than that. No, I, I really appreciate you being transparent and honest because that's one thing. I, I certainly 100% agree, and it's a thing that I've been imploring everyone since this sort of, especially since the Elon Musk nonsense, I was saying, listen to the people who are credible, and when you broke the story that you did, I was like, thank God someone's come out from a position of credibility to actually say something, because everyone else was coming out with nonsense saying, and you know the people I'm talking about, there's plenty of cranks on social media saying that they've got some kind of scoop, and I was trying to implore people, like, you know, a story this big isn't going to break through nonsense like this. It's going to come from official sources. So um, it's good. And, that also, and also, you know, I think a lot of the big moves now will be behind the scenes. I mean, you know, assuming there are moves. I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, even if, you know, say I'm sort of trying to 
tap into it if if i was you know jim ratcliffe and ineos or any other interested by all the move you know he's he did go public now but all the moves i would be making would be the private ones i'd be contacting the, the bankers and the glaze you know I, I would be trying to do my due diligence behind the scenes because i think you know i think they did think it was sensible to get it out there to sort of create a public momentum but yeah i think the hard work now has to be done um yeah in private which doesn't mean to say we're not trying to get hold of it or won't but um you know i think i think say yeah the 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 the, the sensible moves now are finding out the reality of the situation which in itself is co is complicated i mean yeah do do, do 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 you know jim ratcliffe camp made it clear to me that they would be interested in minority state but only if that led to a full takeover he's not the type of guy who's going to sit there as a silent partner so that you know that's a huge question in itself isn't it yeah yeah absolutely um cut through the noise go to the main sources that's my advice and, and that's certainly one of those um obviously with a connection to jim so um yeah when you need noise on the takeover go to the proper places i would say um i gotta thank matt again for his time i really do recommend this book it's absolutely outstanding and will probably go down as the definitive record of the 1999 season which is no mean feat considering the quality of that season and at least it means it's one book i don't have to write i can enjoy <laughs> well, I'm, sure, I'm sure you'd have, you'd have done a fantastic job but no those are really kind words i mean if that's yeah if i'm anywhere near that then that that's a joy it was you know and i hope uh, i guess you know i hope the the joy and the the thrill of being there at the time has come through i mean that's almost the main you know that's as um if i have you know that that was an absolute basic requirement of writing this book was that if anyone picked it up they would think wow you know either it wasn't it amazing to be there or i wish i had been there because that's how it was and um if any of that passion and uh that thrill comes comes through then um i'm, I'm delighted no yeah from from a, a biased point of view when you read an objective record and it sort of like gives like a sort of clarity over things that you like oh Obviously, because you've got some romantic connection to it yourself, you know, your memories of it and being there, it's like, all right, it authenticates my own memories of it at the time. And, you know, it's just a fantastic read and um, the memories are fantastic as well. Um, yeah, it's available, Waterstones, Amazon, all the good places you can buy the books, book depository as well, free delivery worldwide. And, um, yeah, really recommend getting your hands on it um, before before everyone else is telling you about it get the stories first um if you've enjoyed the podcast give us a nice review on the platform you're listening on and like and subscribe on youtube as well we'll be back later in the week with um i think keen's on friday night with phil marsh and lee lawrence to preview the southampton game but um until then thanks matt for his time and uh, thanks for listening thanks for watching cheers Wayne.